0: I'm in a series on the gifts of the Spirit, and today is part five, and we're going to take a look at the gift of discernment. The gift of discernment. You know, God is totally invested in us as his people. He's invested in our happiness. He's invested in our success in life. He's not only the creator, he's the one that sustains everything. And so in order to bring us into the fullness of what he has for us, especially as a community, not just as individuals, but as a community, he gives gifts to, to each of us. Gifts that are designed to bless and enhance not only us, but to be given away to each other. So that as a community, we grow together. We're sustained together. You know, we can't run alone. You can't run outside the pack. It's too dangerous. You gotta run with the pack. And in the pack, there is provision. So God meets us in the pack. He meets us in his community to endow us with what we need to be successful in life's journey, in life's journey with him and with each other. So today we're going to look more closely at the gift of discernment. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, just to give us our context again. It says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Holy Spirit says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit to another, the word of knowledge, according to the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healings by the one spirit and to another, the effecting of miracles to another prophecy and to another, the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But the one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So, the gift of distinguishing of spirits. Let's start with the definition. The definition of distinguishing of spirits. Let's look at the word distinguishing. That's slide 57 distinguishing of spirits distinguishing is the act of discerning the act of discerning it is the endowment from God to recognize or perceive in order to distinguish between spirits the focus on whether someone or something or the focus being on whether someone or something is good or evil is from God or the enemy this gift can even sort through what specific spirit it is that one is encountering. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But let's look at 1 John chapter 4.6. It states this, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. This is the Apostle John talking about the Apostles. Keep in mind the New Testament church didn't have a New Testament. And they're making their case. They're saying we're from God, and he who knows God listens to us. Not to the false teachers and the false prophets, not to the false believers. They listen to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, truth and falsehood. How do we find out the differences between truth and falsehood? You know, when, 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 when something is posited as the truth, it doesn't mean it's the truth, right? Deception is the truth slightly altered, close enough that it can be confusing. And so what we need, of course, is the ability to discern between true and false, good and evil, right and wrong. And that is no easy task. I wish it was black and white. It's not. It's the gray zone. And that's why we need the gift of discernment. In light of living in a world, right, that's full of truth and full of lies, how much more do we need this gift of discernment? So let's unpack it. The context, the early church did not have copies of the New Testament. They had the Torah, basically. They had the the Tanakh, and that was in the synagogues, by the way. You didn't carry one around with you, right? You didn't have your iPhone back then. You didn't have like a little published Bible back then. You had scrolls in the synagogue. Where, Where did you come in contact with the truth? In the synagogue, If you weren't plugged into the people of God in local communities, you really had no access to the truth. I want to say, if you're not plugged into a Bible-believing church today, how are you going to withstand all the deception around you? It's very difficult to do that without the church. It can be done still by the Spirit of God, but in community, man, that safety mechanism is much, much higher. The early church did not have copies of the New Testament. The revelation and teachings of Jesus were floating around through teachers. Some were false teachers. Some were true teachers. And there were plenty of false teachers. In fact, there were also false prophets, even false apostles. They all wanted to lead people away from churches into their own groups In Corinth, and we're going to look at the Corinthian passage here in just a moment, but in Corinth, the false ones were presenting a different gospel. It looked close enough to the true gospel that some people were actually deceived in embracing a false gospel. It was that close. It's never black and white, okay? They were presenting a false gospel and a different Jesus. That's kind of scary, right? Are there different Jesuses? Is it possible to receive a Jesus who is an imposter and find security in that? What a shock that would be to discover that the Jesus you believe in is not even the true Jesus. Thus, the gifts of God. Thus, the Holy Spirit, thus the community of faith, thus the biblical text—all of these brought together to safeguard us from false Jesuses and false gospels. So, let's pick up our passage, Second Corinthians chapter eleven. We'll work our way down. Paul here is making his case that he's one of the true apostles in contradistinction to the false apostles in Corinth, in the churches in Corinth. But what am I doing? Or but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false Apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Some of the Corinthian believers were actually following false apostles. They didn't think they were false. Who would follow a false? No one's going to follow a false apostle. They weren't going around saying, hey, I'm a false apostle. Come follow me. They were saying we're true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have revelations about who Jesus is. We've had dreams and visions that we want to share with you. Come follow us. And some of them were being seduced and following. What in the end was a false apostle presenting a false Christ in a different gospel. Paul says, I'm here to shut that down. I'm here to close that opportunity so that it doesn't happen anymore. Verse 14. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel. light. The enemy doesn't come in a red suit with horns and one of those funky tails. He's not going to do that. No, he's going to come as a beautiful glorified Savior. Uh, Giving you the opportunity to find uh, rescue from whatever it is that you're struggling with. He comes and tries to mimic who Jesus is. He comes as an angel of light. You know, you know. We we were helping a dear friend of ours, probably thirty years ago, uh, who was demonized and really just in torment and had been to uh, had been locked up in psych units several times because when she went to get help, you know, they just basically put her in psych institutions. And she came to us. She says, "I don't want. I don't want to end up back there." I know you and Don won't, won't do that to me. That's why I'm coming to you, but they have not been able to help me and they don't, you know, the, 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 the secular community doesn't, doesn't buy into the demonic realm or the spiritual realm or so forth. So they're going to categorize demonization, uh, differently and, and not be able to help with that. They can help a lot of other things for sure. And they have their place that's important and we validate that. But in areas of demonization, they can't offer much help. So we decided to meet with her and she was, uh, uh, definitely demonized and we cast several demons out and there were several sessions after that as well. And it took a couple months to really get to a place of freedom, but she did. And then years later really grew into the strength of who she was in the Messiah and was so grateful for that. When we were, were dealing with, and, and, demonization on a scale of one to 10, one being just overwhelming temptation all the time, just kind of harassing things, and then 10 being you're running around naked in a cemetery and that's where you live and you do crazy things like the gathering. we'll talk about that. She was at about a seven. She was, she was way up there on the scale, right? And so uh, one of the things that uh, we asked her in between the demon manifesting and then subsiding, uh, we asked her, when did, when did all this begin? When did your, your troubles and, and everything really kind of start? We need to find this open door of when this spirit came in. And she said, it came in when I was a little girl. I was being molested, I think by an uncle, but she was being molested. And she was so terrified and hurt by that as, as a young child that she was just desperate to to try try to find uh, uh, protection and safety. And she said that an angel appeared to her in her room one night and told her, if you'll let me come into your heart, I will make sure this never happens again. So I asked this angel, come in, come in, you know, protect me. And she said that angel did, came into her. And she says, you know what? I never got molested again from that point on. She says, but I had other problems. And I began to realize later on in life, I don't think it was an angel. Yeah. And it wasn't. And we called it out. And sure enough, it was a demon posing as an angel coming in through that trauma in order to enslave her the rest of her life. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, I said all that to say this the demonic realm is very, very clever, posing as helpers, as angels when in fact they're not. That is why we need the gift of discernment for that very purpose. Why? You're the target. The unbeliever is not the target of the demonic realm. They're already lost. They're already in captivity. No, they're going after anyone who poses a threat to their kingdom. That's the believer, especially the believer that is serving the Lord 100%. They're the ones that present a risk, and they're the ones that are targeted. That's why we need the gift of discernment, right? All right. Verse 15, Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, the servants of the evil one, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So Satan and his entourage of of, of of fallen spirits, they pose as angels of light. And then the earthly followers that are under his tutelage, they pose as what? Apostles and prophets and pastors here to help when actually they're misleading. These deceivers, they infiltrated the churches in Corinth, They prophesied, they did signs and wonders, and they brought teachings about Jesus through their dreams and visions they were having. And how would the people know? Who's telling the truth? You got two apostles, dreams and visions, revelations, teachings about Jesus. Who's telling the truth? The gift of discernment. 1 John 4, 1 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world, have gone out from us into the world. So how do we test the spirits, right? How do we test? You do that, one of the ways is by the gift of discernment. There's a number of ways. This is one of them. Keep in mind, they did not have a New Testament. So they needed the help of the Holy Spirit, They needed the help of the gift of discernment so they could determine whether or not this revelation of Jesus was authentic and from a true teacher. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 33. This is kind of a snapshot of an average service that would take place in one of these Corinthian churches. So when you gather, gather together, Paul is saying, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. We'll talk about tongues hopefully next week is when we get down to to that gift. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment. Let two or three prophets speak. Let them bring a prophetic word for the church or for even an individual. And then it says, let the others pass judgment. I'm telling you right now, we are a prophetic community. We have prophetic people. We have prophetic gifting. We even have prophets in our community. Small P, not capital P, right? Another sermon, but suffice it to say, we have this phenomenon of the Spirit of God moving in our midst. Do you know what? I'll tell you what. We run prophet classes. We even have a prophet council. It's just, it's just amazing how we'll get people that are so gifted and and view themselves much higher than where they're really at. But they're going to come in. They're going to give a word, and and we we're just open to that. You know, we're not going to quench the Spirit. That's that's the other end of the spectrum but we always pass judgment. So when you give a prophetic word, then the others sit around and say, what do you think of that? You think that's from the Lord. What do you think the Lord's saying? You know, what part's true? What part's, you know, we actually evaluate that word, dissecting it and trying to determine you know, what the Lord is saying or whatever. Oh, my gabonzo beans. We've had people like, what? You're going to judge my word? It's from the Lord. You're judging the Lord. You have no right. This is a thus saith the Lord. There's no judgment here. You need to accept it, pastor. It's like, what do you think? I've been pastoring for a week. Been here for many, many years. That doesn't fly. That dog don't hunt. That bird don't fly, right? We judge prophetic words. And if you don't have the humility to allow your gift to be judged, there's the door, right? Because we're not going to allow people to come in and do ministry and not be accountable. So important. The gift of discernment is one of the main tools for judging prophetic words, for judging spiritual phenomenon, dreams and visions. Again, the solution is not to restrict the gift of tongues or interpretation or to restrict the prophetic words that are being given or teachings or spiritual phenomenon. It's not to put a kibosh on dreams and visions. What we want to say is we want you to exercise that, but we also want a chance to help you by evaluating that and showing you where you're on and where you're off so that you can get better in your gifting. First Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Don't turn away God's spirit or ignore prophecies. Just put everything to the test. Accept what is good and don't have anything to do with the evil. That implies that when God gives you a word to give to someone, he's giving it to you. Who's you? Yeah, the one with clay feet. Cracked vessels, earthen clay pots, implying that when you get a word from the Lord, by the time it comes through your own brain and you process it and you repackage it and give it out, that not all of it... It's totally accurate. So we help determine what God is saying, and then the rest we just kind of shelve, put off to the side. Eat the fish, set the bones aside, right? And we have to have the humility to say, yeah, I'm an earthen vessel. No one gives a a word that's 100% accurate. We're earthen vessels. Jesus did. We're not Jesus. We need the help of his spirit. That's why we are here to judge prophetic words. Now that we have the apostolic scriptures, the question has always come up, now that we have a completed canon of scripture, truth, do we even need the gift of discernment? Of course we do. Think about it, right? Having the scriptures is not enough. As new believers, some of us don't even know how to read them. We don't know how to study them, how to unpack them. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the community. We need gifted people who can help us discern the Word of God, to rightly divide it, to understand it. So yes, we still need this gift. Let me give you another reason. Exorcism. We need it for the work of exorcism. The gospel is primarily presented in three in a threefold manner. Go and preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. I think we focus on, we're going to preach the gospel. <laughs> we don't really do, we don't really know what we're doing when it comes to healing the sick. So we kind of leave that, you know, a little bit off to the side. And no one wants to touch the cast out demons phrase. You know, we just like, ah, ah, see no evil, hear no evil, you know. Yeah, we're we're supposed to actually share the gospel. We're supposed to pray for the sick. And we're supposed to help people that are tormented with the demonic forces of darkness. They come to us. They need that. And we have, through the Holy Spirit, the ability to help people in these regards. So because of that, we need the gift of discernment because you have to discern what kind of spirit is harassing a person, especially if that spirit is in the person. See, oppression comes from without. But sometimes, like the woman I talked about, when you invite a spirit in, when you open a door, they'll actually come in. They, they, they won't just attach themselves, they'll actually come in. And once they're in, good luck trying to get them out. That's called exorcism. That's what the Bible calls casting out of spirits. Do you know that you have to get the name to cast the spirit out, generally speaking? The first century exorcists, the first century Jewish exorcists these are not these are not followers of Jesus they were casting out demons long before Jesus showed showed up do you know that the only way they could cast out demons is they had to get the name of the demon yeah how'd they get the name of the demon they would command the demon in the name of God they would actually use the holy name of God which was forbidden To use, You could not use the holy name of God unless you were a priest or one of these celebrated exorcists among the Jewish rabbis in Galilee. That's primarily where it was centered. So they would actually utter the actual holy name of God. They would say, in the name of, and then they would use the name of God. They would command the demon, what is your name? Tell us your name. And they would use the name of God in the command. And then the demon, at a given point, would give the name. And once they got the name, they could cast the demons out. Now, I don't know why they had to get the name. I don't understand that. But I know that's the way it works. Let me give you an example of even Jesus himself. And you'll see this. This is one of a number of examples. But let's let's give you one. Matthew, or this is Mark chapter 5. We'll work down 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes, verses two and three. When he, Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had had his dwelling among the tombs. So this man has an unclean spirit. Sometimes the the, the scriptures refer to you as having an unclean spirit or having a demon. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. This poor, tormented, demonized person, crazy, out living in a cemetery, basically ripped his clothes off, cutting himself like a wild animal. His family so terrorized and tormented by his torment, would have men go up and capture him like a wild animal, bring him down to a place of safety, keep him in chains, because he would just run back, right? They'd chain him, trying to help him. He'd break the chains, which is also not a mental illness. Not to be confused, demonization and mental illness are two separate things. But one of the earmarks of demonization is feats of supernatural strength yeah, well, he had him, and he would break the shackles, and he would run back up to that place. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him. The demonized guy sees him and, and immediately runs down and bows before him. What's that all about? Do you honestly think he knew Jesus? No, he didn't know Jesus. The demons in him did. They caused him to run, and they bowed right away. Interesting, right? And in a loud voice, shouting, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. This is the demon speaking. Why? Verse 8. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirits. I want you to look closely at the passage. For he had been saying to him. He didn't say it once. He had been saying this. How many times had he been saying this to this demon? It doesn't tell us. But what we see in the passage is, it's more than once. There's several occasions where he's been adjuring this demon to come out. And the demon's not coming out. Verse 9. And he was asking him, again, more than once, he was asking him, What is your name? Again, I don't know what that's all about. I don't understand those principles and those laws. They're, they're, they're within the design of God, but they are what they are. And even Jesus is trying to get the name of this demon who's not disclosing it. And there is this interaction that's been taking place. 9 and 10. And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Personal pronouns, they and them. Sorry. Maybe we should edit that. Too late, it's live. Okay. He said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he, if you go to Luke, it's they. You'll see the singular to the plural, the singular to the plural, because the demon's under a headship, but under the headship, there's many of them. So sometimes they're in the plural, speaking back to Jesus, or in the singular, under the headship within that person. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. In Luke is a little bit different, not to send them into the pegs. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding, oh, I'm sorry, not to send them into the abyss. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. Interesting, huh? First, they're afraid of the abyss, which is the place where you're locked up as a demon spirit and you have no freedom anymore. You're basically imprisoned until the lake of fire event to come. They're saying, don't don't send us to the abyss. Send us into the pigs at least. They wanted to dwell and inhabit uh, biology, if you will, the soulish realm. And Jesus said, okay. And permitted them. And coming out of them, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. In my conclusion and application, I want to bring us back to this idea that the gift of discernment, the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's necessary for us today to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, to make judgments when it comes to spiritual phenomenon. And in casting out spirits, we absolutely need it in order to identify the spirit or we're not going to make any headway. So this gift is very vital for the body of Messiah. And it's even important for us as individuals in our lives. How many times have you received a prophetic word or had a dream or a vision? And you were going to make a major life decision based on that. You know what I encourage you to do? Take your spiritual phenomenon, your dreams, your visions, your prophetic words, right? Pass them by your leaders in your church. Bring them into the community and let those in the church that are mature help you understand that phenomenon. So that when you make a decision, it's a good decision. I've seen so many people Run off with prophetic words, some grandiose ordeal. I'm like, don't go. You know, it's like it's a huge mistake. And, and they didn't listen and they ran off. And they usually, 99% of the time, end up headlong into some type of chaos where they're diminished in a place of great diminishment and they just regret their decisions. No. We're open to prophetic words, dreams, and visions. God speaking to us in very supernatural ways. But we safeguard that in our community through the gift of discernment and those that have the gift to judge so that there's safety and provision and prosperity in our spiritual experiences. Final note, final note. Had one person tell me, you can't judge my word. That's from the Lord. So I asked the person, well, what what makes you think that yours is 100% accurate? Well, I just know that. The Lord gave that to me. I'm just giving you what the Lord gave gave me. So is that like fully inspired by the Lord? Are you saying that that transmission from the Lord to you is fully inspired? Yes. In the same way that the apostles and the prophets who wrote the scriptures we're inspired? Yes, it's the same Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. So, are you saying to me that your prophetic words and teachings, the revelations you're getting, carry the same inspiration and authority as the scriptures themselves? Yes, it's from the same Spirit. I said, that's how we got the Quran, right? Muhammad with his visions, the angel that visited him. What about the Book of Mormon? Yeah, Joseph Smith, dreams and visions, the angel Moroni or whatever, speaking to him the words of God. What about the hosts of smaller groups who are full of error and its fruit for the same very reasons that they elevated their prophetic gifting to a place where it cannot be judged? People never receive words from others who are not accountable for the words they're giving. Danger, Will Robinson, danger for those over 60, okay. Like Isaiah said, thank you, you just gave away your age. Like Isaiah the prophet said, to the Torah and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no light, they have no revelation. We measure these things according to the revelation that's written that written revelation of the Tanakh and the Apostolic scriptures are the highest authority for us without error and there's nothing that arises to that level we judge all spiritual phenomenon by that sacred text and in doing that we safeguard our people and their futures That's it. Shabbat shalom.